Hello folks, welcome back. I'm your host Simon Ward and this is the High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast where I can promise that you'll always hear a Yorkshire accent and we'll never have any adverts. We chat with our guests about peak performance, health, fitness, recovery, nutrition, longevity, happiness and relationships because it doesn't matter whether you want to finish your first sprint triathlon, set a personal best at your next race or just keep turning up until you're in your 70s. Each of these elements has real significance. This week's guest is a legend of British triathlon, Jodie Swallow. Jodie's an Olympian and a former world champion at both ITU long distance and 70.3 distances. She retired from the sport in 2017 and has since become a full-time coach. By the way, you can find details of a coaching business in the show notes below. She's also a mother of three, including twins. As usual, we get into a lot of subjects, including having a winning mentality, a stable environment and its influence on your performance, eating disorders and females in coaching and much more. Before then, please let me take a few seconds to tell you about a two-page case study I've written. If you've ever thought about entering an Ironman or an outlaw distance event, I outline the simple formula I've used to help hundreds of people just like you to excel at their first long distance event. And you can get your copy by clicking on the very obvious link in the show notes below. Okay, so let's crack on and get chatting with Jody. Welcome to the show, Jody Swallow. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Simon. Um, nice to see you after all these years. Well, it is all those years, isn't it? I was thinking when, when I first uh, contacted you about this, the last time we chatted, and uh, I think it was a podcast we did um, around the computrainer stuff that you used to do for us, and it was prior to London 2012, so that's probably about 12, 10 years ago, so it is a long time. Makes you feel very old. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> you're still a, you're always going to be a few years behind me, Jody, on that one. Um, but life's changed a lot for you since then, hasn't it? Um, mother now, coach rather than professional triathlete. Yeah, so um, well, 2012 was just the beginning of me kind of dipping into Ironman, um, and so I've had a whole like a massive career change from ITU racing in that period and then again um in 2017 when I had my first son um and found myself like dipping into trying to get back from um from maternity and and then and racing again but then getting pregnant with the twins again um then emigrating oh and I got married in that time as well (laughs) and um yeah and, and coming back to the UK from 10 years in South Africa so it's been uh a lot's happened um although not much has changed in some aspects in the fact that triathlon is always like a concurrent thing um mm-hmm. and now coaching uh and that's growing and growing in the same way as a, a professional triathlon career grows and grows um and, and then you find yourself like diving back into the high end of performance and knowing all the names and and, and being in contact with them so yeah it's like circles isn't it life is like that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well let's let's go right back then to uh, um the beginning of your triathlon career you were a swimmer right I mean we've always uh, you know we've always uh, used you as a bit of a poster girl when it came to swimming technique I know that um the guys at swim smooth 
used your videos quite a lot to emphasize the sort of uh, what a really good high elbow uh, catch was like and uh, everything else. So um, was that something you started when you were young swimming? Yeah, so I am. Um, uh, my parents, my dad's a PE teacher. My mum's a very engaged mother. But no, they weren't like really trying to push me into swimming or anything like that. But when going through the swim lesson process, I was just really quite able. I also had an older sister that was two years older, so I would chase her and just found myself then in a swim squad because that was the standard I was swimming to. There was a few complaints given that I was a bit younger than everyone else and it was a bit um, out of the ordinary, but I loved it. And, and, and I was swimming before school by the time I was about eight, I think, um, most mornings of the week. And then it, it progressed from there. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a world beater at the age of 12, but I, I think I got my first national medal at the first national age groups, which is 12 and swimming. You go up to like Leeds and you, um, mm. you're you used to swimming in like just a county surround basically. And then you're exposed against these people that are like six foot tall. It feels like at the time I was tiny and um, I got my first national medal. And that was like the first realms of, been sort of included in the national pool so it were and it was a it was a beginner scheme for the 2000 games um it was sponsored by a foot powder called Mysil back then mm-hmm. I thought we met Adrian Morehouse and he was like the poster boy for it and yeah that was my first like exposure to what professional or international sport could look like and, and that I wasn't too far off the realms of being able to do that so then this olympic vision um started to grow and um started to get quite obsessed with trying to make the olympic games you know, as a swimmer then a runner which i was very good at at school um and won without too much effort national school cross countries and national um, medals at 1500 so yeah that that those two things concurrently completely separately actually <laughs> probably not system wise but organizational wise um I had my swim coach I had my run coach and the two worlds operated side by side alongside my school career but not really together as they had to in triathlon in the end so what at what point did you at what point did triathlon come onto your radar and how long was it before you decided to actually give one a go um I think triathlon came onto the radar a little bit in terms of like interviews I had I I did sort of Uh, I won sort of champion children, which was like a national sort of talent award, things like that. And we, I remember my dad saying, oh yeah, she wants to do the 2000 swim games, the 2004 athletics, and then 2008, maybe she wants to do triathlon. So it was always like, there was this, there was a, maybe a potential that that might happen. But to be honest, it wasn't an Olympic sport when I was growing up. So it, it, it just wasn't something that I really aimed for. I also... I didn't train to ride a bike, so it was a bit of an unknown. Um, It was when I went to university um, in Loughborough and I'd had some issues um, with eating and I'd lost a bunch of weight and I was basically told I couldn't go swim training because I'd lost too much weight. So um, that that coach, he was a really lovely man, shared an office with um, Dan Salcedo, who was the fairly newly appointed um, Loughborough student stroke Loughborough Performance Centre coach. Was that Dave Armiger by any chance? Ian Armiger, yeah. Ian Armiger, yes. Right, yeah. Ian, no, I know Ian. 
he was at Bradford, I think, before he came to Loughborough. He's a fantastic fella, and what a personality. You can see why all the swimmers uh, are sort of drawn to him like a magnet, can't you? Yeah, so Ian, well, previously to Ian, I, I swam at uh, my local club, which was Killer Wells, and I had this, like, authoritarian, um, like, very scary coach. Um, uh, I don't know where he originated, but it felt like the, the sort of Eastern Bloc. Um, and then I went to university and uh, I met Ian and Ian was just like a very positive person um, all about fun um, all about enjoyment and he could see that I wasn't in that space in my life um, in my first year of uni so he he told me to take some time out but um, he shared the office with Dan and Dan um, Dan knew that I still ran and just asked me if I'd like to try triathlon, and that was the beginning of it. Um, and that's so what year I, was that then? Um, that was two thousand. So, at that point, then I don't think the talent ID program had uh, started. I think Chris Jones might have been still the head coach and was involved down at Loughborough. I don't think Graham Moore had come on board. But when they introduced the talent ID program, there was a guy called Paul Buxton who was the manager of that, and they set up a, 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 bit, a bit like a syllabus and a requirements for talent athletes. And it was all about swim run. And they weren't, we weren't interested in whether people could cycle or what cycling skills and performances it had. It was about whether they met certain standards for swimming and running. So inadvertently, you fitted that template perfectly, really, for a triathlete. Yeah, so I've seen some, I've, I've been investigating the development pathways now for various things that I'm interested in, and I would definitely still fit those criteria, yeah. Um, they still have the same charts, um, probably a bit faster now, but I would have fitted them for 400 freestyle and um, a 3K run, yeah. So I can't remember what it was for the girls. I know for the boys, we were looking at around 420 for 400 um, swim, and the the this was a, a template that Chris Jones had identified that the Olympics, say in 2012 will be or 2008, will be run by somebody running, will be run by will be won by somebody who's capable of running sub 30 minutes. And so they set this three kilo, three minutes per kilometer pace. And, went, and and if you were under four to fifteen, I think you had to run one kilometer in three minutes. And then the older boys in the squad between fifteen and eighteen had to run three kilometers in under nine minutes. Um, yeah, the girl, I think, the, yeah. I, I think that that's more the girls level now actually right um I was in a discussion about high performance on a call and I think it's 430 for the 400 world class mm -hmm. um level and I I'm not sure about the run I think it's like 16 minutes for 5k but that's slightly for older athletes but yeah there's these parameters that I guess they act as good guidelines along the way um definitely there's some outliers there for sure um I've told <laughs> I've told this story a few times that we had a we had a boy called um uh Scott Thwaites you might recognize Scott Thwaites name Scott Scott became a pro cyclist and rode with the um I think MTM, we might have ridden with the uh, um, South African team, the Quebec team, I think. But um, Scott's dad was always saying, oh, you know, my son's a great cyclist. He's faster than the Brownleys. You should have him in the squad. But he wasn't quite the swimmer and runner that we wanted to fit those parameters we just talked about. And Alistair and Johnny did quite easily. And in the end, we suggested to Des and Scott that they go over to Manchester and speak to the high-performance cycling guys. 
so they did and Scott got selected and of course that it just proves also that 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 template that we had works because Alistair and Johnny went on to be you know uh, we know what Alistair and Johnny went on to be and Scott went on to be a, a pro tour cyclist so you know it wasn't we weren't too far off the uh, the predictions uh, even at 15 or 16 no i think it's 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 really there's an all inclusive um mm-hmm. sort of theme about young young people in sport nowadays um and that kind of goes against like setting levels and performance for that young because they might develop into it and be able to do it but i do actually think that that in, in particular circumstances and the one that you just mentioned that maybe it's better if there is real talent there to mm-hmm. to investigate other ways that that kids can get really good if mm-hmm. they don't quite meet one sport they've always got one of the other three to go to so that's one of the benefits of of identifying talent in triathlon I guess you can see you can see what they might be good at outside of that so you progressed quite quickly didn't you was it wasn't wasn't long before you were winning the European juniors um no I won European juniors in my second race I ever did yeah um I, my first race was in Windsor which was the qualifying for that mm-hmm. um which I came second in um, yeah, it was a bit of a whirlwind of like um, being able to translate what I'm really good at and what I continue to be good at. Well, not now, but before I had kids is the ability to race. Um, mm-hmm. And that was that was carved. It wasn't a talent, but it was carved. The fact that I was an IM swimmer um, when I was a kid and therefore I raced probably eight to ten times in a championship on the various distances of stroke. I was content and then heats and finals and then um, cross countries, cross country racing to learn that trade sort of every three weeks um, in a race um, and more when I went to senior school. So just the art of racing, I, I knew very well. So when I was entered into triathlon and I got on the bike and I turned the pedals and I was cardiovascularly strong, obviously, um, though I didn't excel at any of the technique stuff ever. Um, I was able to, the other stuff that I was good at was just completely over with that. So, so I think that's an important point, isn't it? Because certainly in, in age groupers, and I know even in that talent ID program that, that we talked about, um, there were kids there who would be brilliant when they were training and they'd be consistent when it came to racing, they would never match up to that potential. And there were others who seemed to be sort of just cruising along in training. You never really saw you never thought you saw the best of them but on you but you always knew that on race day they'd be up another level um and I, there's definitely age group athletes that i see that like that that are great trainers but not so good at racing and i want i wonder what it is is that that makes that ability gives you that ability to race is it what you talk about there about just racing regularly or is there something else is is there an internal switch that sort of you can't learn it's just there it isn't um i think that you can train it um, to get better at it but there are some people like myself um, like my sister actually and like I see it in my daughter just have the ability to when you when it's a race everything else disappears and mm-hmm. you get this tunnel vision and that's all you care about and you can read and you learn to read races um, what I used to love about racing is the fact that everything out outside of the world of racing disappears for me um, and I don't think it does for other people but for me um, when the gun went off um, it was 
there was no external thoughts whatsoever, except potentially when I was struggling in an Ironman in the end. I was going to say, but, what about over nine hours? <laughs> um, but that was when I had to bring in my emotional stuff that would motivate me and, and remind me of the things that I needed to concentrate. But, but I can honestly say up to even that um, long distance, which is like 30K run and mm-hmm. uh, um, 120K bike, I, I I didn't have to bring that in at all. It was all just simply the process of racing. And I think that's a real skill that I nurtured in my childhood sport. Other people can get from team games, et cetera. You don't have to do it in sport. But with the age group as I coach, um, the people that have had a background in sport usually learn. I, I see that they seem to hold it together on race day, whereas the others, I have to go through a few processes to get them ready to be able to cope with that. So you won Euro Juniors, and uh, this is quite topical because as we're talking, just in a few days, we have the Commonwealth Games and the triathlons on on Sunday. Um, 2002, Manchester, and there you were in the Commonwealth Games. So you've gone from not doing triathlon in 2000, and now you're racing on one of the biggest international stages there is. Yeah, uh, 2002 was an interesting game. I... I don't think at the time I really absorbed just how incredible that was, taking up the sport and then going to Commonwealth Games in two years because the expectation was always there for me from everybody. Um, From the time that I basically entered the sport, not even raced, people expected quite a lot from me. I remember doing like VO2 tests and don't ask me what they are because I have no idea, but I remember the performance director jumping up and down at them and I had no (laughs) idea what was going on. I was in the depths of an eating disorder at this time as well. So my world was incredibly like different to what the staff around me was were viewing. Um, and it, in some ways it was it was refreshing that I wasn't in this high this swim run expectation from my childhood, but then these other expectations had been created um, by the fact that I was just really good on not much background at all. Um, So when I went to Manchester, I did absorb the games for sure. And I got to know some of the other senior athletes. But then I crashed on my bike. Um, (laughs) And I think that was disappointing um, because I was in the first, the front group. um, And I, I, I kind of thought that was my fault and took quite a lot of disappointment from that but when I look back it was an overall happy experience for me and and certainly um the biggest kind of um excitement stage I've ever raced on actually I remember them banging the boards on the run and I just recovered from crashing on the bike and and was running sore but I still remember that and that's a really a, a really good thing to remember that even though it wasn't the result that I wanted it was a positive experience just just on that bike thing um I always used to think it was a little unfair, but you, but from people who perhaps weren't as engaged in the sport, you used to get a bit of stick for your bike handling skills, I remember at the time. Do you think that's fair? I don't think it's fair to give anybody stick about it. But actually, do you, do you think people were right in that your bike handling skills could have been better? Or um, is, was that, is that just a, a, a poor perception that people had? No, definitely. My bike handling skills could definitely have been better. Um, and I wanted to make them better, but I, I'm not sure that there was the expertise in coaching 
mm-hmm. or pathways in coaching to do that for me because of course I turned up to training when it was there and I did what was set um and of course I wanted to improve the things that needed to be improved but if if the if the coaching isn't there it's quite hard to do that um mm-hmm. when you're new to a sport on your own so um it's it's definitely something that I would look if I was coaching youngsters at skills from a young age um they're easier to teach but they're also the most important thing to teach um to youngsters coming up in triathlon yeah and I know now since since they've had the Brownlee Centre uh, constructed in Leeds and they've got that purpose-built track there they've had professional cyclists come in and work with the guys and even even athletes that are racing in in WTS events you know the, the cycle coaches have looked at them and said you know you don't spend enough time on the drops you you your positioning going into corners could be better. Um, so, you know, they are getting that now, but this is 2020, 2022, not, not 2002 that we're talking about. So it's taken 20, well, I mean, they've been doing it for a while, but it's taken, it's taken a while, hasn't it? And those are in te- when, when you're doing drafting races on tight circuits with lots of dead turns, and lots of sharp turns, those are probably the most important skills. Yeah, I think, I mean, you can't really blame too much given that it was, I think they got funding in 98. Um, mm-hmm. from the, so the national appointed coaches only started then. It was such a young sport. And I was yeah. one of the sort of pioneers of that program. Mm-hmm. And so they had to learn their lessons, basically. And they did. And they have. And it's improved now. And, and the focus of, um, you know, closed circuit tracks and skill sessions um, for youngsters um, in the programs now is nothing like it was for me. And that's why I, I kind of take it. A little bit of um I laugh at the fact that people criticize my bike skills then what do you expect if someone's mm. been riding for two years and hasn't had any coaching I mean what what can you really demand well that's the problem when people make an observation based on one thing rather than knowing the backstory isn't it yeah but that's just part of uh, part of sport I guess we're mm. all um, armchair warriors aren't we um so things kept going well and then in 2003, you did the Athens test event. You came second to Michaela Jones, and that got your selection for the Olympic team. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I was it was up and down my career. Um, I, I had stress fractures at that time as well, and I spent most winters injured from various things. As I said, I had an eating disorder, and that had major repercussions in terms of my body's rigidity. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to train hard um on under fuel body and and that meant that it would eventually break down and I was also in this system where I could get physio or massage anytime I wanted so I kind of used to rely on that quite heavily mm-hmm. um rather than solve the problem of what actually was going on because that was quite a hard problem to be able to deal with mm-hmm. or for anyone to be able to address to be honest mm-hmm. and nobody really wanted to address it so um I had this like it wasn't all happy a successful story but yeah in 2003 I'd had a period I mean I raced the national champs in in that June and I had just come back from a femoral stress fracture like not oh. run for over 12 weeks and I think I came like seventh but post that race I I made a decision to get myself sorted and I really did work on trying to stay on the straight and narrow with the eating and just trying to do the right things. And I did. And, and 
I had a sort of many World Cups in 2003, sort of top five, and I didn't really know what that meant or anything else. But I thought it was pretty rubbish that I was coming fifth and not winning, to be honest, because I didn't have a background in the sport. I didn't understand the legends that I was racing. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand the legend that was McKeeley Jones, to be honest. Right. I came second to her. I just liked her. She was a really nice person. I remember talking to her in drug testing. And yeah, it was great. I came second, but I had no like idea what that actually meant. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's funny to, to think back to those days. I was such a different young athlete. And I think that because I was racing in the senior ranks um, and because I was very good, there was some expectation that I knew what I was doing, <laughs> but I didn't really. Um, not looking back um, as this kind of 40-year-old looking back at their 22-year-old self, I was just so young. So you got selected, but then you were injured, weren't you, over the winter again, and then coming into 2004. And it all got a bit nasty, didn't it, with the selection for the Olympics? Not not from your perspective. With um, I think it was the other girl that was uh, sort of felt like she'd been overlooked because she was performing well in that season. Was that that was Andrea Whitcomb, I think? Yeah. So there was three trials for the Olympics. Um, one of them, I think, it was Ishigaki and the World Champs in the summer of two thousand and four. But the the one that they would fall back on if nobody qualified in those events was the test event in 2000, late 2003, in November 2003. So um, I had the top result, obviously, of the Brits in that one and nobody qualified in those two qualifying results. I think, you know, they front pack swimmers went away or something and the runners didn't come through. So or Michelle Dillon qualified in the first race outright. Um, I think Julie also qualified outright in the first race. And then nobody qualified from the Worlds. And, and so they went back to the selection policy and that was the next race in line. So I was selected, um, which I obviously was happy about. Mm-hmm. But I was also still injured at this point. So um, it was all a bit up in the air whether I would actually go to the Games or I could go to the Games. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, to be, to be honest, at that point, when the selection races came around, I had absolutely no control because I wasn't in them. I wasn't no. racing. I was injured. So um, it was all kind of happening over there, if, if you know what I mean, while I tried to rehab this Achilles that was just um, uh, being incredibly difficult to heal. But it's, you know, you've you've got nothing to do with, well, you have no involvement in any arguments that are going on. It's not the first time it's happened and it's not the only country where it's happened. But I always wonder how that affects you mentally when other people are arguing about your status in the team and how how that impacts on, you know, your stress levels. And then obviously stress levels, as we know, impact your sleep, impact your ability to recover, to train and everything else. It's, uh, it, it, I imagine it can be quite corrosive. You might tell me differently. Yeah, Um if I look back, so the people that were contending the um, the selection were Leander Cave and Andrea Whitcomb. And I completely, I get the fact that they were contending the selection because they are athletes that want to go to the Olympics for Great Britain. But there's a selection policy and that's been put in place and, and that, that's kind of the way it goes. Um so I don't really have any like thoughts about those particular people that were 
that that were asking to be on the team and, and asking the questions that they wanted to ask. That's absolutely normal, I think. And maybe if the shoe was on the other foot, I would have also asked those questions. So there's no like bad feeling about that. But I do have like absolute memories of. I don't think it was led properly, and I don't think the communication was good enough mm-hmm. in the management that it was that some things were filtered wrongly to me. Um, I didn't have all the information. Um, I was maybe possibly been trying to be sheltered from the information, which led to um, you not understanding what's going on, which leads to suspicion. Um, uh, all, all like while you're supposed to be trying to rehab an injury and getting ready for an Olympic Games, mm-hmm. and it's all just doesn't add up, and everyone's getting cross and the stress from other people that um, want medals for the country for different reasons and yeah it was just really badly handled um in the leadership and actually I think what the crux there was a review after the Olympic Games and basically the leaders blamed me um and I just yeah I just stepped back and I was just quite shocked by that um but not really vocal enough to say anything at the time because I was still in the system but for instance, my parents, I spoke to my parents about this um, recently and they told me some stuff that was said. And yeah, it, looking back as an adult, looking back at the situation when you're very far removed from it, it's, it's actually really shocking. Um, mm. And I don't, you know, I'm not a victim. Like I, I'm a, I, I was a good athlete and strong and I came back from it. It was, that's fine. It, it's done. But um, I think if people want to move on and and change things, then that there should have been a little bit more openness um, and mm-hmm. communication and and good good management going into that because I think I think there is now, but I, I think that that it that had to happen for that to kind of evolve. Mm-hmm. So, uh, at what point after Athens did you start thinking about longer distances? Um. I tried to stay in the shorter stuff um, up till about 2009. Um, and from the repercussions of Athens Olympics, I got very down. Um, I don't really term it as depression, but there was definitely times where I was um, overwhelmed by my situation um, and I fell into a, um, a very abusive relationship. And that that relationship actually revolved quite heavily around triathlon. Mm -hmm. And this guy um, wanted to be involved in all aspects of my racing and coaching and just general trying to make the Olympic Games. And all the repercussions of that were just like a roller coaster of awfulness Mm -hmm. and good stuff sometimes. Um, and there were peaks and I, you know, I, I did get some good results in that time. Okay. Results, not great for me, but they were okay. So I stuck in the system and I could sustain myself financially through sort of race. Like I did escape to Bermuda and, and you'd like win prize money for that. So I could put that back into my, into my training. And I was living off, um, the prize money that I'd won as a very good junior. So. I could sustain it and I sustained it till 2009 um, when something happened and 
a very violent incident happened and I left and um, I left and at that time Chris Jones actually who we've mentioned mm. I asked Chris to help me I wanted to do this long course um, triathlon in Australia the long course world championships luckily I had qualification from a 70.3 I'd done um, early in 2009 I'd won the Singapore 70.3 as preparation for an ITU summer and um, so I thought I want to try doing this it was in Perth it was a long way away from England which I wanted to escape from um, given the circumstances so he got me ready for that and I won um, and then everything sort of you're like going through a fog and I've been going through a fog for like six years of going through this fog trying to swim through and struggle through and and and, and struggling for breath and um suddenly and it's quite <laughs> Perth the Perth race was incredibly sunny and very bright and like mm. just lovely people around actually and I, no, I nice, just nice part it of the cleared. world it cleared this fog cleared forever and it did clear forever and um I, I carried on working with Chris until March 2010 when Annie Emerson contacted me and she said listen I think you should go and work with Brett Sutton um I've been thinking about it for a while and I needed to tell you I think he wants you um so why don't you this is his email address um I contacted Brett and that May I I left England for the foreseeable future and left to go and train in Lazen, Switzerland with um, the Brett Sutton squad. And in that time, I actually trained for ITU. I did the first World Series event in London. And I think I came fifth, sixth, fifth or sixth, which was pretty good. Uh, and my, 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 um, everything was coming on really well. I won out Duez the week or three days after that race. Um, and everything just skyrocketed skyrocketed when I first went to Lazin I had to borrow money off my mum and dad monthly to pay my rent but then that only lasted for one month because I began to win everything and um suddenly yeah the prospects in long course racing changed dramatically so with Brett Sutton probably a different conversation but there's always a lot of discussion about whether you know whether Brett's a great coach or not or whether it's just the system having all the athletes together the fact that they all sort of uh, key off each other and sort of push each other onto performances or maybe it's just the environment where you shut away in that sort of monastic sort of lifestyle um or is it a bit of both that that sort of um that, that leads to successful performances and great athletes because there's been a lot of them associated with Brett there's been a ridiculous amount yeah um I think the answer to your question is definitely he is a great coach in his way um but also yes I, lazy didn't work for me um it, it was an incredible environment in terms of the people that were in that squad at the time they were just great people to be honest um and you also like remove yourself away from the situation like, I had this awful history in England mm. um not all to do with triathlon but all associated with you know when you're a professional triathlete triathlon is your life so it's all associated within the same thing I've left and I'm in a place where there's no judgment there's no mm -hmm. history um I remember arriving in Lazy and I had this awful I mean, you know, Verrucas can get quite sore. I mm. had one on the, I had one on the ball of my foot, and it was getting a problem. Like I couldn't really run on it without pain. And I, I got the train up to Lazin, and I got put in this tiny little like 
it was smaller than an average kitchen to live in that Britt had found for me. And um, so I, I got put there and then I woke up in the morning to walk up to the pool to go training and this Veruca had just disappeared. Wow. And I just thought, oh, maybe this, like, I don't know. I don't believe in, I'm not religious and I, I don't believe in God. And I, I don't know if I believe in fate, but sometimes I think sometimes when you take the pressures of everyday life away, mm-hmm. um, opportunity arises in places that you didn't think it would. So I had no expectation when I went to Lays In to train with this group of um, professional athletes. I didn't know Brett from Adam. Um, I didn't trust him. I didn't know him. All the communication I'd had with him was fine, but I, I mean, had no relationship with him at all. Um, but I guess, I guess many factors come together when someone has created a performance and it, it just happens. So happens that for me, having that particular coach at that particular time in that particular place worked out really well for me. You had great results at ITU, as we've talked about. You won world long distance triathlon. The ITU won twice, I believe. You won world 70.3 once and you came fourth in Kona. So you were pretty good across all those distances. Which was your favorite? But and which also which was your favorite distance and which suited you best as an athlete, do you think? Um well, I think my favourite distance and what suited me best are the same thing because I was all about the winning. Um, definitely 70.3. And I look now and I see these PTO events and I'm just a little bit jealous because I definitely think that would completely be in my realm of um, expertise. And also the also the Super League um, in terms of swimming in a pool, cycling on a bike on a turbo without any technical skills whatsoever and then <laughs> running on a treadmill that would I would have caned that um but you know um at the time it was just all about Ironman and 70.3 and ITU racing so 70.3 was definitely my strongest um sort of forte I as I say I was a racer and as a kid you don't really know pacing and I never knew pacing when I was a cross-country runner I was just really strong like endurance wise so I could keep going further than the others went out hard kept it and that didn't really change that much in in all of my racing so when I when I got to Ironman um, which was inevitable I guess um, that was my strategy all out on the swim most out on the bike and go hard on the run until you blow and that's what I did and when I actually nailed a few Ironmen Ironman Ironmen um Ironman definitely um (laughs) well I I did marry an Ironman so so I guess Um, you know I guess you nailed that one then (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah like um when I did do it when I did get a result from an Ironman it was just because I was really fit um it wasn't because of a strategic difference. Um, so I don't think it actually suited me. I'm definitely not in Kona. Um, I, definitely not. But I managed to pull it together through sheer talent and fitness. Where was the venue for the 70.3 Worlds that you won? Was it, was it Clearwater? Yeah, so I won in Clearwater in 2010 on a road bike. I rem- um, well, I remember that one I, um, because you turned up on that road bike and you just rode away from everybody else, didn't you? That yeah. were on their that were on their sort of super aero time trial bikes. I mean, that's that's an astounding show of power and um, and endurance. Yeah, it, I mean, it was a it was a 
painless race to be honest for me I it was a sea swim and it was a bit rough actually so that's mm-hmm. kind of taken out the equation so I was well ahead um and then the bike um was flat but I'd been in Thailand um with training with Nicola Spirig um just beforehand and so I was that humidity of clear water was just not didn't affect me at all I, I felt it was not humid at all compared to Thailand where I'd been um training so yeah, I, I I I cycled hard the only way I know how basically, and the run just felt very simple because I was so fit. So yeah, I won that one, and then I came second in 2014 in a completely different scenario in Mont Um mm-hmm. uh, two minutes behind Daniela um, Riff in her sort of first breakout performance. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which um, she's which she's continued for eight years. Yeah, she has, but that was it. It was so annoying at the time because I was no longer coached by Brett, and Daniela was coached by Brett. So I knew, and I know when Daniela broke on the bike, it was in a crosswind going down a very steep mm-hmm. hill, and I know that he told her to do that. So that was very annoying um, because, well, it's the, the way it works, isn't it? You you work with the athlete that you have at the time, but I still think that if he hadn't have sort of asserted that tactic to her, I might have a different, uh, another world title in my, in my, um, in my little bag, but no. Um, so 70.3 was definitely my favorite distance, but I think now as a viewer a watching, I really do like this PTO distance um, because it's slightly longer on the swim because it brings in some of the ITU athletes that might not have come across to long distance. And because there's so much prize money on offer, Mm. um that you get all the names you get the dynamic of racing and you get the endurance as well so I, I'm really enjoying that um and yeah if it happened 10 years ago it would have been fantastic I'm sure there's a lot more people saying that as well Jody. um you touched on your own eating disorder um in 2012 you wrote a blog on your website it's still available and, I, and if it's okay with you I would like to signpost that in the show notes but you, you wrote this in relation to um, the problems that Holly Avil was having at Loughborough. Um, you were working with Daley Thompson at the time as well. I, I always remember thinking, oh, that's a strange, uh, that's a strange matchup because Daley wouldn't be the first person I'd think of uh, as being involved with a, with a triathlete. But um, can you can you just talk about that? You don't need to go into your own personal stuff, but maybe there's, there's still some stuff around eating disorders, both in male and female endurance athletes, but certainly what your experiences were of that and how, how you think um, things might have changed or how we can continue to change them. Because I had Alice Hector on recently and she spoke about that as well and some of the things she'd experienced. So I, um, I, don't, I haven't read that blog um, recently. I don't really remember writing it. I don't know what I put in it but it won't have changed, I'm sure. I, I still... So Holly, um, I probably wrote it in reaction to Holly dropping out of the sport mm-hmm. in the same way that I could have done very easily. Um, and what really angered me at the time was the fact that it had already happened in British triathlon and it, it was happening again. That just annoys me. If it happens once, okay, that's that's an experience. But if it happens again, it just just makes me quite cross... But the fact is with eating disorders, and I see now well out of it, that um, it's a really difficult dilemma to deal with because you have this dichotomy of performance. You have another aspect of society, which um, 
you know, might be influencing the eating disorder as much as performance. And you have the fact that many athletes with eating disorders do quite well for some time. So there's this like, it's really difficult um, to deal with. But I think what the main thing that I would work towards with young athletes, whether they have an eating disorder or not, whether they're likely to get an eating disorder or not, is communication and honesty and absolute openness. Because I think that's the only way you can really start to combat something is if, if you know all the information and are willing to deal with the, the, um, the dark parts of someone's life as well as the good athletic parts. So um, I don't know what I wrote in that blog, but I can be quite... I mean, I'm working from a position now quite removed from it and quite honest and open and see it quite clearly that this is a major thing in sport for young people, men and women. Mm -hmm. And the only way to try and make it less of an issue or not allow it to become a big issue for individual athletes is to address it openly and talk about it and because that isn't there when you have an eating disorder. You are not open. You are not willing to share. But I look at the ways that I got over the eating disorder and it's all emotional support. It's all making sure I'm happy outside of sport. It was nothing really to do with nutrition and eating. And therefore, it's this whole holistic view of coaching and training that has to be brought in to prevent stuff like that getting worse and worse and worse and actually like making people quit in the end. So um, it's quite difficult for coaches that aren't involved in athletes' lives to be able to see that. Um, and there's always this like, you don't want to be too involved in an athlete's life because that's taken away their privacy. But then people have different thresholds and needs. And I think that that's working out what exactly they are and, and how you can help and what can change this for me it was always I never had any eating problems when I went away on camp with the federation um and when I was in a training camp this wasn't a problem so it was obviously to do with my home environment mm. um and the people around me at home so at home being the UK not my home parent life they were fantastic but I didn't have an eating disorder when I was with them either, but it was all about when I was on my own. So identifying that and being able to work with that, if you have the time and the expertise, which I think that coaches and management, if they can allocate the time to that for a period of time, it might pay off in the future for individual athletes. Um, mm -hmm. Because, yeah, there's these key points that it's really important to address that it doesn't escalate and get worse and worse and worse. Going back to your article, I, I read it before we spoke and I, I actually thought it was very perceptive um, 10 years ago. You know, I, I, I'm going to come on to something else uh, where I sort of got an insight into your perception of uh, situations. Uh, going back to the eating disorder thing, I, you know, the education for coaches, I've been involved in coach education for a long time with, with triathlon. Um, and it's still probably not something that we put enough emphasis on. But I also think there's a, there's a language issue as well because a coach can make an off-the-cuff comment um, you might be referring, I think in the Holly Avil thing, you might have been talking about that comment that was made to her or made about her. And I think you mentioned that somebody said it to Daly that may well have been an off the cuff comment, but those things are like little paper cuts, aren't they? And if there's too many of them, they they start to, they definitely have an impact. 
um, over time? Yeah, not even too many. Sometimes it's just one. Mm. Um, and that is a thing. Like, But I think that also comes down to building a person so robust that that doesn't penetrate them. Mm-hmm. Like in some ways, both me and Holly were very strong, um, resilient, determined girls. But said, but we also had vulnerabilities. And I think that those vulnerabilities created like a soft patch in your armor. And that was like where where some comment that wasn't even aimed at you, it was just like it just mm-hmm. fired in your direction and it, it got caught. And I think that if you can create better, like better self-confidence, better confidence in your own body about the way it functions for you, the way you train, then that wouldn't that just better, more solid belief in terms of what can actually make a performance better, faster, make you a better triathlete, then that won't actually penetrate. It's just that if the old myths and perceptions, Mm. you know, we're brought up with, uh, I'm not going to say them because the more you say them, the the more they're perpetuated, but this kind of belief that if you're very light, then you go faster Mm. because that's true in some, in some extent, but not if it's not supported by a strong skeleton and strong tendons and strong limits, you're never going to get anywhere. And if that was more emphasized as well as these myths, it will overrun them. That's what I believe now. And it's really easy to say when you're not in it anymore, but I don't Mm. know if I'd have, if it would change me when I was back there um, being, been very sensitive to these things but we're human beings we are sensitive to these things is that um, is that where is that where daily came in then helping you because I, I remember reading an article in 220 i think you were talking about your strength training routine and uh, that, i think that was where i first read about you being involved with daily um i think that my the major thing that daily brought to me daily will work with anyone that asks him he's really just into helping people and he's mm-hmm. got time and he's only invo- in, interested in training so uh, that's quite that's what's quite weird with things. If you ask people in in sport in general to help you, they they usually do. If they're not interested in making financial gain, they'll do it for free. And mm-hmm. and I would go down and work with daily because not because of the training that he gave me, which was just quite robust kind of old school strength training that I hadn't really done before. But it was good for me. Um, no damage was being done by it. But what was the most um most helpful with daily and it probably kept me in the sport to be honest through the hard times is the the mentoring um Mm. the the belief that when he saw me do a run session even if I was heavy or injured or not as fit as I once had been that he could see that I was trying more than most people would and that he gave that value rather than the actual um, numbers on a page. So, yeah, he was great to work with at that time. Again, the right person at the right time. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wish that he would, like, I don't know, could put me in a cave in, in the middle of Battersea or something because <laughs> <laughs> he, he definitely was a problem of performance at that time. And if I could have been around him all the time, then there would have been no problem. But um, life isn't like that, is it? You have to go back to the problems that you've got elsewhere and um, and deal with them at the same time. So you mentioned that your eating disorders cropped up 
at, at times when you were in this toxic environment and you talked about being happy outside of sport. Now, we talked to, right at the very beginning about last time we had a conversation was before London 2012. And I asked you several months ahead of the event who you thought was going to be in the mix for a medal in the, in the, in the women's event. And you gave me five names and I think you, you were spot on with those five people. And I was quite taken aback by that. I said, well, what makes you so sure, Jodie? And you said, well, I know all these girls. I know how well they train. There's not much between them. But the other thing is they're all in happy, stable relationships and they're in a great place mentally. And I remember thinking, to me, whoa, you don't normally hear, co- well, you don't ne- normally hear people talking about the impact of that stable environment. I thought that was brilliant. And I've remembered that ever since because as a coach and the way I coach now, I put a lot on relationships. I put a lot on harmony and I put a lot on sort of the environment that uh, that people are in. And, and I'm reminded of that, that what you said regularly. And so you've brought it up again earlier. So um, can, can you just expand a little bit more on that, please? Because I, th- I definitely think from what you've said that that plays a huge, probably plays a huge part in your own coaching. Well, I think that... Um... I probably I, I I'll take all credit for getting that right. I don't know what I said, and I don't know who I don't know if it was particular like perfect, but I definitely would have got that. I entered a relationship with my husband James in two thousand and eleven, um, and I was also working alongside in Brett Squad Nicholas Birig, who was with Rito Hook. Mm-hmm. And obviously, like I I raced Nicola in my first race I ever did at European Juniors. I won, she came second, and then World Juniors the following year, she won, I came third. We were, our, our, our careers were concurrent and our talent was probably quite concurrent too. Um, but obviously mine had gone waylaid on the way and I just felt like, what, you know, how does she do this what, that I didn't have? And that's what I saw. I saw that she had created this, I mean, Obviously, we only portray the good parts of our life to other people, and I'm sure there's a part of that too. But Nicola's training situation, her home life in Switzerland, just seemed so simple to the fact what I'd been through. And um, I, it's not solely the reason why she got so good, but I'm sure it played a huge factor, and it definitely played a huge detrimental factor to the fact that I didn't make it in my in my terms so um it, it's quite hard for me to take that somebody that I'd beaten in my second triathlon ever was now Olympic champion and um but it's not just she hasn't just become that and I haven't just not become that there's there's factors involved and she had created the environment or it had been provided for her or it was just luck who knows that nothing else was going to affect that and life was simple apart from training hard so I saw that and then um yeah I, I think I probably with my situation and I was happy with James and I was I'd had a bit of an injured year actually in 2012 but I was still happy so I was probably quite confident in saying that it was going to turn around and that we just handle it as it came so yeah life perceptions massively different in 2012 from what you would have asked me before that I probably mm-hmm. would have gone for like an eccentric person that was up and down but that was kind of what I've seen and what I've viewed now um that unhappy athletes they might be successful for a couple of years but eventually it, it mm. catches up they they get injured or they leave a system and they everything comes crashing down so um 
And that's what I found with the coaching going there forward, that I went to coaches that I was very happy with when something went wrong and I wasn't happy. I left. I didn't hang around. I didn't waste time. Um, and yeah, I, I was only able to do that really because my happiness was supported by the fact that I had a regular someone that cared for me that was traveling around with me, which who was James. So mm. um, I see that in the athletes I coach. Most of the athletes I coach have only come to me, the age group as I coach have only come to me um, in a situation where they can train hard. So usually their life is quite stable. Um, they're they're not going to come, you know, you would never sort of reach out to a coach, I guess, with my name, if you didn't have a stable base to train every day and a routine Mm -hmm. and support from your family to do it. So that that's kind of different. Um, But with the pros that I work with, yeah, definitely. I, I don't like to be nosy, but I definitely want to know about personal life, about personal circumstances, about how you're feeling in terms of your weight, how everything's involved. It's like a, almost like a friendship, but not a friendship because it's also um, a kind of analyzing as well. Um, and I just, yeah, I just make sure that the conversation is flowing and that it's honest. And that if something's bad about something that I've said or something they've done, as long as you're honest about it, I don't care. That's that's what I, I come. And that's from, from what you're saying about your coaching is very much the same, that you you look at the holistic thing. They're, they're, they're training two to six hours a day. What else is going on here? Why are you so tired? Because it wasn't from the training. So let's have a look. Why is your HRV so um you know so off or like why is your resting heart rate so high or you know and it's quite interesting because um so with one of the athletes I was coaching I was convinced it wasn't home life she was seemed happy she seemed fine but her HIV was going rapidly down and I just didn't know what was going on and it turns out like um five days later she's got COVID but she didn't know at the time. And it, it, it sort of, it's quite interesting how now we've got like a data point to assess what we were trying to assess before, but we knew it before, but we didn't have like a data point to actually say, yes, that's it. I love that. I love the sort of mix of the science with what we already knew. <laughs> how, how, are you int- how are you measuring uh, HRV with your athletes, Jodie? Um, the, my athletes have different methods. Some of them have got aura rings and some of them do it on apps in the morning. But do you, they, do you, they just do you, report it on training peaks. Do you measure your own HRV? No, I don't. I don't measure anything to do with my health because my health is not the best, in the not in the best parameters at the moment. I did try sleeping app. <coughs> and when I was breastfeeding the twins, it told me that I got two minutes of deep sleep. <laughs> It's that's it's just depressing, it's isn't it? Yeah. yeah, but that wasn't one night. That was like for six months. And wow. after three days, I was like, I don't need to know this because it's just going to have a detrimental effect. And I think, I mean, I'm, I, 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 I would, if I measured my HRV now, I think maybe I'm in a position to do that. Maybe I'll start doing it. But I don't think I do enough training to like make it about training. It would be more about health with me. Mm. Yeah, I've been using. I was using the Whoop app for four or five years, and I definitely recognise that bit of what it's called orthosomnia, isn't it? Where you st- you want to improve your sleep, but you start looking at the data, and then it makes you more worried about your sleep, and it actually gets worse, which is uh, yeah, a bit of a paradox. 
Um, well, a... I've got a good clue, Simon. If you want to improve your sleep, have kids. <laughs> not not in the first couple of years, but you're catching up after that. And I could sleep anywhere now. <laughs> Listen, Jody, I've got. I know you said you'd, 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 we've got a time limit. Have you got a few more minutes just to chat about a couple more things? Yeah, yeah, I have. Um, I wanted to talk about retirement from sports. Um, a lot of triathletes, you know, even age groupers go through this when they can maybe no longer run and they, they've identified themselves as Bill the triathlete or Joe the triathlete. And then all of a sudden they're no longer able to do triathlon and it affects their identity. How, how does that work as a professional triathlete when everybody knew you as Jody Swallow elite triathlete, Jody Swallow Olympian, and now all of a sudden you're not competing anymore and people are asking, are you going to be racing, Jody? Are you still training? Um, it's really, really difficult. It's really hard. It's a really hard process. For, and everyone that is a pro triathlete is going to have to retire at some point. So everybody's going to go through it. Mine was quite, um, I was on a, a podcast the other day and it was pointed out that it was quite rapid. Like I won the world um, ITU championships. I won a 70.3 in South Africa in January. And then suddenly I stopped. It wasn't like a filter out. It wasn't like getting ready for retirement. I got pregnant and I didn't race anymore. So it was quite a rapid um, change. I, I think with me, it was overwhelmed mostly by children running around everywhere. So it wasn't so much of an identity crisis because I identified as a mother. But um, I think I still struggle with it now because I, I am coming into the coaching circles because I am involved in the same sport. Um, I want to dissociate myself from Jodie Swallow, the athlete, into Jodie Swallow, the coach. But obviously there's like massive like overlay. And if I wasn't the athlete that I was, I wouldn't be the coach that I am. Um, but it's almost separate like the, the attributes I had as an athlete aren't necessarily what I portray as a coach so um yeah it's difficult but I, I think that you would go through that in any big change of career and I guess most people don't have massive changes of career at 40 but um most sports people it's coming or it or it's just being yeah let's talk about your coaching then how how did you get started in that um, I always sort of dabbled in coaching. Um, I always wanted to be a teacher. Um, aside from this triathlon thing that I kind of got pulled into without realising um, at uni, I always had a vision of wanting to be a teacher. My parents were teachers and I thought that that sounded cool, um, wanting to, to work with young people. I like them a lot. So that was always in the background and I wanted to help. I like being around triathletes and I like being around good coaches so whenever I went with good coaches I would try and help and and work with them and talk to them and also study them a little bit too about the way they the way they did things and what worked and what didn't seem to work when they were communicating so that was always um concurrent and obviously it evolved as I went through but um when you're a full-time athlete you're a full-time athlete and there's not much else to actually pursue that. Um, when I stopped and when I was um, sort of, so James was still a professional triathlete um, in 2017, um, racing across the world and I had young Jack 
I started to get involved in coaching online, um, age groupers, people that had asked me for help. I was writing a lot of that time um, in an Australian magazine about various subjects. Um, I really do enjoy writing. So um, that kind of progressed. And through that, I got some interest in, in the ways that I do things and the thoughts that I have about training and um, ways to get better. So that came, I was coaching some Australians online. And then um, it's just progressed from there, really. I've done now, when I came back to England, I wanted to get involved in coaching um, youngsters and development pathways for obvious reasons that we've talked about. So I then um, enrolled on the BTF training level two course so that I could um, hire lanes so that I could coach one on one and that I can get involved in the federation system if you need that for insurance purposes in the federation. So I've done that and um, I continue to try and um, develop in areas that I don't necessarily have experience with, like practical coaching of squads, et cetera, with the time, limited time that I have. But a lot of the time I have now is developing um, single athletes, mostly online um, because of the fact that I'm looking after three kids and um, helping them develop programs and getting faster at 70.3 and Ironman. So, um, yeah, I, there's a few routes that I want to go down, but maybe the time isn't quite there at the moment. But as the kids go to school, things open up and um, I'd really like to get involved in being on deck, conducting a squad, a high performance squad, inclusive of actual, you know, it's, high performance is quite a funny term. High performance, I think, is actually relatable to yourself. People try and do the best that they can um with what they've got I've really enjoyed it more than I thought I would um with time restricted age groupers it's not that different and I I I like I like um because I understand being time limited um with the kids I understand families and I understand that if I can coach somebody that's getting something from triathlon that it isn't always just taking time away from family or their job it's actually enhancing their life to be a better father or mother mm. and be a better worker so I really love that part of it and um yeah I've got a uh, loads of athletes that are so different um and different personalities and yeah I I love getting to know them and kind of making a program for the goals that they have and just making sure that they're not overdoing it in triathlon um, or life so that it's sort of sustainable for them. It's really nice to see you coaching, Jodie, because um, one of the things I observe and, and have seen over the years, both in triathlon coaching in general, in, in sports coaching in general, and certainly at the elite levels, is that we do not have enough female coaches. And I know when Jack Maitland was running the Performance Centre in Leeds, he met some, some resistance within British triathlon to mentoring and bringing on female coaches, identifying people who had um, had the ability and had the will to, to want to do it um, and the confidence, if you like. Um, and so Jack started his own little private mentoring program and get, getting some female coaches to come along and observe and help him out on the swim, swim squads. Um, but I do, I do think that 
uh, you know, somebody like yourself is is a role model for for other female coaches and and might help other people. But I just um, I just wondered what your thoughts were on this and and what what we can actively do to encourage more females into the into the sport of triathlon generally as coaches, and also what we can do to get more females, you know, as elite coaches. So I never really considered this before I started coaching. Um, because I had a really good female coach in Siri Lindley. Um, and I never, like, when I went, Siri Lindley was the first female coach I ever had. And I didn't even clock it. Um, but like many things, you don't clock things until they affect you. And then suddenly I found myself in a coaching arena where mostly women were coming to me. And I didn't really understand why. Um, because I coached a few men and I got on really well with them and I was a good coach to them and we had a really good relationship. So I, I didn't really understand the high percentage of women coming to me as opposed to men. And now it's probably about equal, but I think I had to prove myself as quite a good coach and be referred by people for those mm-hmm. men to come to me. I don't know. I don't know. You'd have to ask them, I guess. But the other thing is, like, I then tried to sort of get into the federation jobs and applied for federation jobs. And I am very aware that I'm the only woman at interviews. And this question is brought up in interview, actually. And I I don't know the answer, but I think unless you employ females, then you can't really start to change the protocols that there are and the influence that you don't know that are influencing. So the fact that I've only had one female coach in my career um, means that I almost subconsciously expect a male and I don't really realise that. I was also, I was on another podcast and he was asking me for females to interview coaching and I I kind of ran out after five um, (laughs) of top level female coaches because there just aren't that many. And when these things are brought to light, you're like, oh, wow, because these female coaches are very successful. So there's no mm-hmm. reason. And women bring something different to the equation for sure. Um, I mean, Siri coached mainly females um, when I was in the squad, but then so did Brett. So that might, you know, that might be just the type of coaching that they gave. Or it might be the fact that men are used to being coached by men and have to change their mindset to be coached by women or it might just seem strange I don't know the answer I don't know the answer but as I apply for jobs and as a woman I do know that being a woman makes me a bit different so if if somebody's looking for something different then I would say that it's a really good chance to give it a chance (laughs) Um, but sometimes people don't like change or difference and Mm -hmm. they'd rather stick with what's already there. The other point is that where I've been on some like regional training days and stuff, and there's a higher proportion of boys than girls in the sport still. Mm -hmm. And, and that means that there's less proportion of girls interested in the sport to a high level. And therefore they're less likely to go on to coach in the sport. So if you, if you attack it at the grassroots level, um, trying to get girls to stay in sport and to um, 
give them as equal opportunities as the boys in terms of qualification and as much attention and as much resources, then I think that that kind of goes on that they might go into coaching and then you get more coaching and the more female coaches means more involvement with youngster females and it's all like a spiral. Mm -hmm. Um, But you have to make the changes as you go along, I think. Um, I Both me and James coach and have coached and I would say that we're very different. Um, but I coached James for a while and he thought I was the greatest coach in the world. So um, I am his wife, so he's a bit biased. But I don't know if he'd have ever gone to a female coach if I wasn't his wife and he knew me very well. So maybe it's a little bit of a just um, challenging the norms, I think. What do you think? I, I, I do think there's an integral confidence issue there's definitely not enough female coaches but i've seen this that and and you can see this across many industries that if you put a list of criteria for a job for instance 80 there'll be eight out of ten men who'll probably won't meet the criteria but will just go oh yeah i can do that job easily and there'll be two out of ten women who are overqualified for the job and and they'll probably say oh i'm not i'm not sure if i can do that so i think there's a confidence thing I think that confidence thing might come from the fact that often females are overlooked and perhaps it's just that's just a you know an industry-wide thing. Um I, I definitely don't think there's enough proactive measures to introduce and and to um to encourage females into coaching. I know on the level two, or certainly on that high performing, and there's a, there's an interesting you were talking about high performance. We use high performing coaches, so that we distinguish between working with elite athletes and being the best coach you can be. Um, on the high performing coach program, we've actively been encouraging female coaches, and I know that we've almost had a fifty fifty application rate this year, which is fantastic. Um, but it's been a slow burner, and um, so I, I think there's a number of facts. I think some of it's institutional, some of it's you know, just um, that gender specific uh, confidence thing. And some of it's just inbuilt biases that maybe they're subconscious biases like you talked about that we don't realise. Yeah, I also think it might be to do with women having kids and taking Mm -hmm. time out to do that in terms of like, so a lot of the, I've applied for like roles since having kids but I can only do three days a week with four, mm. three kids under four. I, I simply can't do it because my husband works full time. So although I'd love to do after school clubs and I'd love to do before school clubs, um, there's a time problem there. And I know that equal parenting should mean that it's equal for both partners, but it's not always the case because it's usually the woman that, well, it is the woman that's been out with maternity leave in this mm-hmm. country. So mm-hmm. I think that that's a problem in terms of like volunteering coaching wise, because um time is limited for women at certain periods of life but that doesn't really explain um you know youngsters coming in um that are translating from you know in males you see like young coaches um sort of doing experience on poolside straight from a program so they might leave a high level program as an athlete and 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 stick around and learn coaching but and yeah it doesn't seem to it doesn't seem to translate to girls doing that for various reasons well you you do have an opportunity now Jodie you you were a a champion world champion 
in in different distances you were definitely a pin-up girl for many different reasons and you know you're a high profile in the sport and you've definitely got an opportunity to, um, in doing what you're doing to be a role model for female coaches and to to help us encourage more into the sport I think yeah I think I think I have to learn as well as I go along as all coaches do um but yeah I think the lessons that I've learned have been quite hard ones um quite unique I think as well like I I love coaching what I'm doing at the moment because um, I learn, um, but I do miss the like hands-on mm. um, interaction of body language with athletes because I think it's really it's really nice to be able to walk onto poolside and see your athletes walking and, and understand why they're tired, um, their body language, what their body language translates, and being able to do that is an integral part of coaching as well. So I, I love the love the time that I'll be able to do that um and sort of learn as I as I go along as well because it is about communication and I am very good at communicating on certain levels but you have to also have the hands-on experience of doing that with the athletes that you're working with at different levels in their career youngsters um and as they as they're progressing so at the moment I coach adults and um I'm happy doing it, but I I really want to sort of everybody wants to grow and change, don't they? And develop. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's part of what I want to do. Well, Joe, it's been fab- fabulous to catch up with you. We will definitely um signpost your coaching business. It's it's Kunamar Coaching, is that right? Um Jody Swallow Coaching. Jody Swallow yeah. Coaching. Okay. Yeah. Until so, James joins me. Until James joins you. So we'll we'll put links to that. Um we'll we'll there'll be lots of other links in the show notes. But for now, Jody, thank you very much for being on the show. Thanks, Simon. Thanks for having me. Thank you again to Jody for being a guest on this week's High Performance Human podcast. As usual, you can find links to all of today's discussion topics in the show notes below. To make sure that you don't miss any episode in the future, please go to iTunes, search for High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast and subscribe. Also, please don't forget to look for that link in the show notes so that you can download your free case study If you want to find out about the simple formula I use to help athletes like you excel at their first long-distance triathlon. That's all for now, so please have a great week and I will see you on the next episode.